The word of God from Revelation. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. you please remain sitting just a moment longer and let's just pray. Lord, here we are, your people, having heard your word, and now we ask by your spirit that you would apply these words to our hearts, that we would not be hearers only, but doers. Soften us, illumine these strange, strange words, give us understanding. Lord, we want to grow, we want to change, but we can't will ourselves into that, and so we ask, be with us through the preaching of your word, that we would grow and be conformed to the likeness of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Ronnie. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, if you're new, you have caught us right in the middle of this study on the book of Revelation, as, of course, we just heard chapter 7. Uh, last week, we studied, if you'll remember in chapter 6, the seven seals. But then we noticed that between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there was this interlude. And that interlude was the presentation of this mysterious 144,000 uh, witnesses uh, that were sealed. And that's the, the focus of our study today. And you've probably heard about these 144,000. Uh, and I want to just say this up front, just with all respect, because many of us have loved ones um, or good friends or people we really respect who are Jehovah's Witnesses. And, but I do want to say that they have so catastrophically uh, messed this up. They have so catastrophically misunderstood God's word uh, that they are not properly called Christians. They're not Christians. Uh, they have an entire religion built around a kind of strange teaching. And so it's really good for us to think about chapter 7 for ourselves. What is its application for us? Um, one of the ways to think about this text as we kind of on-ramp to it, it's sort of like the Reuben vase illusion. Does anyone know what that means or what that is? So like in the early 20th, early 20th century, there's this Danish psychologist, his name is Edgar Rubin, and he created this black and white image. And there were like a number of different kinds of tests that were done with respect to this black and white image, but sometimes the tester would say to a subject, would say, hey, look at that picture of a vase, and then that person would turn around, and what they would see are two faces in profile facing each other on either side. And then sometimes the tester would say to the subject, look at the picture of those two faces. And then they would turn around to the picture and they would see a vase. So that difference between what someone like hears and expects and then what they actually see is a really important theme in the book of Revelation, and especially here in chapter 7. And, and chapter 7 isn't the first time that we've seen something like this. If you'll remember, this was the case in chapter 5. Let me just quickly recap what that was. So if you'll remember, there's a scroll that was found in heaven, and it was locked up, and it was sealed by these seven seals. And this scroll contained with it the true history of the cosmos, like everything as God knows it to be as he is ordaining it. This is the great plan of redemption, past, present, and future. This is what we might call the director's cut of the world, the very pattern of the tapestry that is being woven into human history of which we are all a part of. So you can imagine there's the disciple John. He really wants to look into the scroll. This is an opportunity for him to understand like why things happen the way they do and how it's all going to resolve and work itself out. But John was told that the only person who's able to open those seals and unlock this story and execute this redemption was a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. So John hears of this lion, but then when he turns, he looks. He sees something very different. Instead of a lion, he sees what? A lamb that was standing as though it had been slain. So imagine the surprise. That kind of switch happens again today. 
Last week, we looked at the seals. We remembered that chapter 6 was a picture of the final judgment at the end of time, at the end of human history. But before those four angels execute this final judgment, one angel speaks up and says, wait, let me mark and seal and protect the witnesses, the servants of God. And those are the famous 144,000. And so you hear 144,000, but then you look and you see something very different. So there's more than meets the eye in this passage, but it is important that we get our hearts around this because it is telling us who we are and is telling us of the work that God has called us to as we live this life of tribulation, a great tribulation indeed. So in order to kind of plumb the depth of chapter 7, I want to explore the details under kind of two headings for you note takers. First, we're going to look at a holy army, and then we're going to look at a holy war. So words like army, war, that's a strong language, isn't it? I know that's what we hear, but when we turn and look, we're going to see something very different. So let's begin with our very first heading, a holy army. Have you guys ever heard of that street artist, Banksy? Okay, there's a few of you. So he's known for his like sort of distinctive stenciled artwork that um, it often sort of conveys really subversive political and social, me social messages. Uh, one of the things that makes his art so interesting is that no one really knows his true identity. Uh, it's a very well-guarded secret. By all accounts, he has maintained anonymity, even though he's like globally famous. So this guy, you know, and ladies, it could be a girl. I, I, presumably he's a guy, but I guess we don't really know. But anyway, I think he's a guy. He emerges, right, in the early 1990s out of Bristol, England. That's where his art starts appearing. But one of his most famous works is called The Flower Thrower. And you've probably seen this picture. It's a picture of this young man who appears to be engaged in guerrilla or street warfare. And he has a... Um, like a Molotov cocktail in his hand, right? One of those homemade bombs. Uh, so this Molotov cocktail in his hand, and he's about to violently throw it, presumably against his oppressors. But when you inspect this Molotov cocktail, instead of it being a bottle filled with explosives, instead he is throwing a bouquet of roses or a bouquet of flowers. He's actually bringing or launching beauty into the world. So this imagery of like a fighter fighting with beauty is actually going to help us understand uh, the Apostle John's vision. So John is standing there. Before this final judgment, this, you know, the sixth seal is executed, he hears that the servant of, servants of God will be sealed and protected. But notice what it says. Look there in verse 4. He says, And I heard... The number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then what you see in verses 5 through 8 is the roll call or a census. Now, that language would have been very familiar to the original audience. And for those of us who've read numbers a handful of times, right, in the Old Testament, uh, it's not mysterious at all. This 144,000 is a symbolic number. It's a squared number of perfection. 
And in very predictable census fashion, it mimics the priorities of Numbers chapter 1, right? The numbering of men of proper age to fight in the Hebrew army. It's also very similar to like that passage in Numbers 31 when Moses took a thousand fighters from each of the 12 tribes to make a raid against Midian. And then again in 1 Chronicles, we find, right, I don't know if you remember this, but King David, he creates this sort of national guard of sorts. His army was divided into 12 divisions, each made up of 24,000 warriors and serving these like one-month deployments. So this census, this pattern, what you see in verses 5 through 8, is very well attested to in the Old Testament. The 144,000 rings in the ears of the disciple John of a military census numbering the army of the people of God, just like we saw in the army of Israel in the Old Testament. So this large army is what John heard. That's what he heard. But then there's a switch, right? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold... He sees something different. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So you see this pattern here, right? Right? In chapter 5, John heard about the lion, but then he saw a lamb. And that lamb radically reinterprets Messiah. Same thing here in chapter 7. John heard, what he heard was a Jewish military census of 144,000. But then he looked and he saw what? This uncountable throng of people from all nations and tribes. And that was radically reinterpreting the people of God. The people of God are most certainly a holy army. Thus the census language. But we are categorically different than a conventional army with very different objectives. So you'll see there at the very end of verse 9, look there, second half, they are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So instead of like swords in their hands, they have palm branches And the reason why that is so significant is because it is martyrs who die with palm branches in their hands. Instead of wearing helmets and breastplates, they're wearing white robes. Instead of singing war songs and jodies, they sing worship songs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this radical reinterpretation of the army of Messiah would have absolutely shocked John's readers when it was written, just like seeing a slain lamb shocked him. See, because this is not an army of able-bodied men. It's a diverse group of faithful martyrs. This is an army that dies rather than, is ki- rather than killing. This whole image, it's shocking because the followers of Jesus, right, in, if, in the first century, if you could think about it, were not an impressive multitude. The church was tiny. And now it's becoming clear that it includes Jews and Gentiles, men and women, 
slave and free, all these cultures, every manner of culture will be there. And here's why this all matters. This is telling you who you are. You belong to this army. And by lovingly and meaningfully being a part of this army, you are testifying, you are witnessing to Christ. Now listen, you guys live in the same America that I live in. I love this country. Served in it. Love this country. But it seems like the words that we use to describe our home are words like what? Angry, divided, broken, hyperpartisan, right? I mean, there's a thousand more adjectives I could use if you just hear the language that we use to describe ourselves. But the army of Messiah triumphs by dying, not by being angry. The army of Messiah is brokering peace in a world of rage. We fight by launching a bouquet of gospel into the world. Good news that can make the cynic cheer. And we stand side by side with people who do not look like us, who do not have the same political or economic intuitions as us, People of all economic, social strata, all colors of skin and culture. And all of those differences are barely even noticeable because our song of worship of the Lamb is so unifying. That's the thing that anyone notices. Shoulder to shoulder, standing before the throne. You know, it's like I tell us every sort of election cycle. These election cycles are such low-hanging fruit for us to be witnesses to the world. Our love for one another, particularly with our diversity, is so absolutely puzzling and confusing to the watching world, right? Because we in here, we absolutely refuse to divide ourselves in groups that reflect the divisions that we see in society. We say, yeah, that's not, that doesn't go here. Listen, you guys, in wartime, Armies suffer casualties, and so will we. When we pledge our loyalty to the Lamb, we are saying, may his destiny be ours. May our death bring redemption like his death. Maybe, maybe it's outward martyrdom, but like we spoke about last week, it's more likely that it will be inward martyrdom. We are the army of Messiah, and we are not in between wars. We are at war. We are in the tribulation. (laughs) We are engaged in this cosmic battle. I mean, I know everything looks nice outside, I'm just saying, but that's that's the reality behind the scenes. And so here's what I want you to hear from me is don't get bored. Don't get self-centered. Rather, rest in this unbreakable hope in the triumph of the Lamb as you worship Him side by side with people from all tribes and languages. Now, having having spoken about a holy army, now we need to speak about a holy war. This is our second point. So, you, you might know this, but like in Switzerland... All male citizens between certain ages 
are members of the Swiss army. Like it comes with their citizenship, it asked for or not. Uh, even in modern Israel, a little bit more prescient, uh, there's something similar. Everyone, men and women, are conscripted or there's this compulsory uh, service that everyone must serve for two or three years. And actually at any given moment, virtually the entire nation can be called up to serve. Now, why do I mention this? If you wear the seal of God, if you are part of Messiah's army, if you are of the baptized, it's part of your citizenship, which means you must pay attention to this holy war. Compulsory service, whether you ask for it or not. Now, listen, I know this governing metaphor is extremely precarious. In the world of jihadists, it's, it's really important that I speak carefully about this. So please listen. Because history is violent and confused and powered by misguided religious movements that run on hate. Justice has very little to do with the wars that we see. But just as the church is sometimes called the bride of Christ or the body of Christ or sometimes the family of God, here we do see that the governing metaphor is an army of God. Why? Because this tribulation that's described throughout the book of Revelation is tantamount to a holy war. That, that is the spiritual description of tribulation. And all this weird imagery is meant to communicate that we are engaged in a cosmic struggle, much of it which is unseen to us. And it involves every institution, every household, every classroom, every nation and tribe. And the war is in the front of the war is never far away because our own hearts are fronts for fighting in this holy war. This is how come in Ephesians 6, the apostle Paul will say, he'll say, our struggle is not against flesh and blood against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what Revelation is doing, right? You see one thing, like we look around the world, we see one thing, but then he's letting us peek into the spiritual realities and you're like, man, it is an all-out cosmic war. And so for this reason, although it might feel really precarious, the Bible does not shy away about speaking about our present tribulation as a holy war. It uses that governing metaphor. But just as the holy army was not what it seems, this holy war is waged in ways that are completely counterintuitive to how this world fights wars. So later in the book of Revelation in chapter 14, you're going to hear about the 144 Thousand, but you're going to see the lamb leading the 144,000. And they're not, it's important, they're not led by the lion. They're led by the lamb. And it's said that the army follows the lamb wherever he goes. That is to say that they fight the way that their leader fights. In the Old Testament, when a Jewish army would leave like a battlefront, maybe David leading his guys or something like that, when they would leave the fronts of the battle, 
they were always very careful to wash the blood from their garments because that blood made them ceremonially defiled and they couldn't worship. So they washed themselves after battle. Here, in verse 14, in this heavenly vision, the, the soldiers, it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a war that is won by being killed. Rome was going to be conquered by the willingness of Christians to be like their master. The army of Messiah conquers by being conquered and yet remaining as faithful witnesses. And the only way that each of these soldiers find the courage to engage in this cosmic war is to keep their eyes fixed on the Lamb and by singing the war songs of victory. Look at all, uh, how all the angels and the creatures and the multitude, they sing this song of benediction in verse 12. It's like this battle cry. Look at verse 12. It's a battle cry. Amen, blessing and glory and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Notice that there are seven words of completion and perfection. Now, if you'll notice in your Bibles from verses 15 to 17, you don't see it so much in your program, but if you had a physical Bible, you'll notice that your translators did you a favor of indenting verses 15 through 17 to show its poetic form. Again, it's a song of victory. They are singing to their own hearts what happens when the opposing kingdom falls and the kingdom of the Lamb prevails. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. Right? They're envisioning what this looks like. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Victory song. Now you, listen, here at Denver Presbyterian, we teach the biblical message that Jesus Christ is seeking the renewal of all things. Christ is establishing his eternal kingdom with the healing of all things. But now, in this present moment, during the great tribulation, that's human history, there are forces opposing his kingdom which do not wish to be liberated or ruled by God. And so we must all wake up to see that we are all neck deep in a holy war, a cosmic struggle, an unseen one. And we are all in the army of Messiah, but it's a very different kind of war. It's a war that's all around us, and it's within us. And we fight with the same weapons as our master. We fight with faith in God, with pure lives, with true words. 
we wash ourselves in the blood of the Lamb. You know, if you can begin to think about this, now the Apostle Paul's words in like Galatians 2 start to make sense. You know, Paul, he says what? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. Now all of a sudden, those kinds of words start making a lot of sense. We're being united to Messiah, the one who dies and brings healing. In this life, we are learning to be strong in the Lord and, and to find strength in his might, not our own. So let me remind us again, Ephesians chapter 6. I've read a portion of this. Let me, let me read the whole passage because you're going to hear this with different ears now. As Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Those words start making a whole lot of sense, don't they? Yes, this is military imagery, but it is not jihadist. In a typical combat, when you were killed by the enemy, that means the enemy has won a battle over you. But in this holy war, when the beast puts the martyrs to death, they become the real victors just like Jesus. In this life, you guys, we will have tribulations because it is a cosmic war. But listen here, listen. What you hate about this life has purpose. What you hate about this life is actually prophetic. And those terrible moments of tribulation, in those precise moments, you are declaring before people, you're declaring before the whole world, you're declaring before angels and demons that the love of Christ will never let you go because you are sealed. What a witness. Precisely in the tribulation. What a witness powerful enough to supplant the kingdom of this world with Christ's kingdom that a crucified leader would bring healing and, and, and precisely triumph over his enemies through death. Family, listen, this world will break our hearts. This world will break our hearts. But like in the words of Corey Ten Boom, our joy and peace will dance on the grave of everything that breaks our hearts 
And not because we gain supernatural strength or some sort of final control over everything that is against us, but because Jesus gets the final say about this whole world and about how human history goes. And this holy war will end in triumph. The triumph will bring no more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching heat, and God will wipe away all the tears from our faces. That's the battle cry. That's the battle cry for a holy army engaged in a holy war. Let me conclude with a story that just really touched my heart as I prepared this week. It reminds me of the life, the inner life of a faithful soldier in tribulation. So it's 1851, a ship of uh, a group of Brit- British missionaries, they sailed down to the southernmost tip of South America. It's um, that tip called Tierra del Fuego, which is um, very close to Antarctica, actually. Um, they got there. There was another ship that was supposed to rendezvous with them and resupply them. But that ship, the supply ship, was delayed. And while, those, um, while they waited for that resupply ship, the missionaries all died of cold and starvation. When the ship, um, the supply ship arrived, they found that Richard Williams, one of the missionaries, one of them had written out a journal. And here are just two entries from his journal. The first one, poor and weak though we are, our abode, our body, is a Bethel, a house of God to our souls. And God, we know, we know he is here. And then several entries later, and this would be his very last, his very last entry. He says this, he said, should anything prevent my ever adding to this journal, let all my loved ones at home rest assured that I was happy. I was happy beyond description the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed places with anyone alive. Like those are the words of a man who willingly signed up for the war. And he knew that joy was his greatest weapon. Joy, because in life or in death, he is sealed and he is engaged to see the lamb where there is one day no more war. Every soldier fights so that there would be no more war. He works himself out of a job. Amen. Amen.